Welcome back to another podcast of Beaten Not Broken. I am your host, Leon, and on today's episode, we have the lovely Kimberly joining us. Hi. So a little bit about Kimberly. She is a domestic violence survivor who is currently fighting for protection rights against her abuser. In addition, she is also advocating for changes in how police address domestic violence situation and is trying to get the attention of her local assemblyman to help make legislative changes that would help domestic violence survivors. So Kimberly, could you give the audience a quick introduction, including your name and how many years you were in a domestic violence relationship? I was in a domestic violence relationship for close to nine years, but it wasn't always that way from the start. Now, I would like to take a moment to say thank you to Kimberly. She saw my post and reached out to me, wanting to share her story. So thank you, Kimberly, for being with us today and allowing us to hear your story. Thank you. I think that this is a story that needs to be told because women are not being protected. The law fails you at every single turn, and it seems to really benefit the abuser and not the victim. So let's jump right in. Kimberly, could you tell us your story of surviving domestic violence from the beginning to the end in as much or as little detail as you feel comfortable sharing? In the beginning, like I said, he he wasn't really abusive, like in the beginning, like physically and stuff. There was some things that kind of made you pause with things that he said and stuff like that. But nothing that would make you be like, oh, this person's going to end up destroying my life. He just said a lot of things that seemed really wrong, the way he addressed me or to my children. Um, We do not have children together. He was very mean verbally, actually one in particular. He really had it out for my, my son, and he really went after him verbally, mentally, emotionally, and it really put me in the middle a lot, trying to like stop this from going on, arguing and fighting with him, you know, like then it would turn between just a fight between him and I, and the more this progressed, he started turning it more towards me, and then it became a lot of, um, which it should have been that way to begin with, he should have never went after my son, and it's a lot of guilt that I have to live with the rest of my life. He then started going after me, but then also at the same time, he started abusing opioids. And then then he started becoming, I mean, I know pot's not supposed to be addictive, but he took it to a whole new art form. Mm-hmm. He was smoking like almost $600 worth of weed a month. And then he, all of that money being funded by me, mm-hmm. he was depleting my bank accounts. He, between the hydrocodones, the weed, He just became mentally altered, and then he was going after me more so than anybody else, which is fine. Verbally, mentally, emotionally, physically at times, he just became a complete out-of-control monster. And I learned later on that a lot of the things that he was saying and doing, I read in an article about gaslighting abuse and everything I read was completely spot on about that the way that he would say things and do things and insult me and he 
you know, I was either too fat or then I was too thin. I was too pretty or I was too ugly. I was stupid. I couldn't do anything right. I was going to college. I was going back to college and I loved to write and I would do phenomenal paper and I would get top grades for those papers that I'm writing in English and stuff. And he would always look at me and be like, you know, oh, this is really good. But, you know, you could have done this to make it better. And, you know, it was always like backhanded compliment, you know, like, oh, this is good, but it sucked because. And he would do that kind of stuff to my son, too. My son was extremely, is extremely intelligent. He graduated from high school and college simultaneously. And now he's working on a bachelor's and he's pre-med. And then after that, he's going to med school. The kid at 15, let's see, 14, when he started uh, ninth grade and college simultaneously, he was on the dean's list from ninth grade to 12th grade. And he was even on inducted in the National Honor Society at college at 15, the youngest one ever at school. He had a 4.0 average, but he always tell my son all the time that, oh, yeah, you got a 4.0 average, but you know what? You need to do better than that. And I would get mad and argue, and I'd be like, how could you insult him and put him down like that when he's doing 4.0 average on the dean's list and he's, he needs to do better? What else can he do? But my son really could not do anything better because in his eyes, nothing would ever be better. My children begged me a million times to leave him. It became the point between him and I where it started becoming very physical. And then my children were begging me more to leave. But at that point, I felt so beaten down on the inside that I just felt like I didn't know what to do anymore. I wasn't myself. And it really started to affect me mentally. I became very depressed. And I was also going through treatments for cancer and stuff at the time. And that really wears down on you, too. Uh, like I was saying, it became started to become very physical. He would get in my face inches from it, and he was screaming. And um, there would be times where, like, if I had things in my hands, he would hit my hands so the things in my hands would go flying out of my hands. Mm. He'd push me from time to time. And there was always a lot of arguing all the time. There was one time that definitely sticks out in my head the most because it was the most devastating thing that ever happened to me in my life outside of when he tried to kill me. My son had to save me one day. He was arguing with me, and my son hadn't left for college yet for them, his morning class. And he was arguing with me, and it escalated and escalated. He got up from his chair and he threw me to the floor and was screaming at me. And at this point, he was trying to grab me by my, my hair on my head. And I was curled up in a ball, like in the fetal position on the floor. And um, he was trying to grab me by my hair so he could drag me around the house. And my son normally tried, he tried very much a lot of the time to steer clear, even though him and I would have a lot of private conversations about him begging me to leave came running down the stairs and my son does not normally swear because I don't allow my children to swear in front of me. What they do with their friends is, you know, I can't stop that. But he came running down stairs and he goes, what the fuck are you doing? And my son at the time, what, well, he is still six too, but he's was very muscularly weightlifted every day. He was huge. And my ex-husband 
was only six foot and my son went charging at him. I thought for sure that he was going to like beat him. And he looks at me and he looks at him and he goes, get the fuck out of my house. And then he looks at me and he goes, mom, are you done yet? And I was felt like the worst piece of shit that anybody could possibly ever feel like. And two days later, my son ended up moving out because he couldn't take it anymore. He couldn't take what was going on with himself. He couldn't take what was going on with me. And he left me and that was devastating to me because I raised my children as mom and dad, basically. And for my son to leave me was the most painful thing that ever happened in my life. And I remember at that instant when my son left, I literally became in that moment, the first time in my life, homicidal. When I went in my room, I just collapsed on my bed and I was hyperventilating and I was crying. And he chased me up, the, not my son, but my ex-husband chased me up the stairs, came into the room and started running his mouth to me. And I was so devastated. And I told him, get out of this room, leave me alone, back out the door. Don't take your eyes off me. And he still continued on. And I said it two more times, the same thing. And the last time that he ran his mouth, I said, this is what's going to happen. I said, my son left me and he's not coming back. And it feels like either someone kidnapped him and I don't know if he's coming back or he died. And I said, this is all your fault. And I said, I'm going to kill you. I said, you need to back out the door and not take your eyes off me for one single second. I said, because I'm going to jump off this bed and I'm going to get you to the floor and I'm going to strangle the life out of you. And if that doesn't work, I know where my field knife is because I was in the military. So I do have you know a lot of my stuff. And he was also in the military. I said, I'm going to get my field knife. And I'm going to put it in your chest until you're dead. So get out of this room if you want to take another breath. Luckily, for once in his life, he actually listened and backed out the door and left me alone. But if he had not, I, I was prepared to go to jail because I lost everything in my life. I, I had nothing left at that point and nothing mattered anymore. I mean, I still have my, my other two sons, but at that point, I, I had nothing. And my life and my world was deflated even more than it already was. There was so much going on too. other times. I mean, that was, that was the hardest one. There were times where he would be arguing with me and he would grab me and shake me. And one time he grabbed me and shook me. I was screaming on my face and I got scared and I eventually got away from him. I was able to turn myself away. So I would try to head towards the door. And he grabbed me by my arms and I swung my elbow back to try to get him to let go of me. And my elbow hit him in the side and I must've hurt his rib or something. I don't know, but he let go of me. When he let go of me, he threw me into the closet. I had a huge bruise all on the backside of my arm. And a lot of these things, when they started happening, I started taking pictures at that point. I documented a lot of different things. I had one friend that I trust more than anybody, and that friend had all the pictures, all the documents and things that went on. 
But this kept on up until the point on February 28th of 2018 when he tried to kill me twice in one day. This was a Wednesday. On Monday of that week, I had told him I couldn't do it anymore. I, I had to leave. I, I was done. I can't do it. Things were never going to change. He was a raging drug addict. He just was out of control. And I just couldn't live that way anymore. And I couldn't keep doing that with my one remaining son at the house. I had to go to the VA on Wednesday for an infusion because I get infusions every two months. I had to go to get my infusion, but there was nobody that was available to take me. So unfortunately, I had to have him take me. So, and as we're leaving the VA, he starts an argument with me in the car. And I'm just tired at this point. I can't just do this arguing stuff. And I don't want to be in the car with him anyway. So I told him, just pull over and let me out. I would call an Uber or whatever. I'll call someone to come get me. I don't care. Even though I was like 35 minutes away from home. He wouldn't let me out of the car. He wouldn't pull over. So as we're going through the city of, of where that VA is, every stop sign he came to, I would try to get out of the car. And he would hold down the lock button on the car. And then he'd hurry up and punch the gasket through the stop sign. And then at one point, I was just begging him, you know, let me out of the car, just pull over, and he wouldn't. And this went on all the way through the city. And then at one point, he called my son, who at the time was 15. And he, I said, what are you doing? Why are you calling him? And he goes, he needs to know what his mother's doing. And I knew at this point that he was doing this to keep me in the car, knowing fully well that I didn't want my son involved in this kind of stuff because my son would be upset. So luckily my son didn't answer the phone, but I already agreed at that point that I would stay in the car. And I was crying. I wanted to just get out, but he wouldn't let me out. And then he involved my kid. And I said to him at that point, I'm like, you are the lowest piece of shit ever for you to call my son and involve him in this just to keep me in this car. You're sick and twisted and there's something seriously wrong with you. And then we ended up getting on the throughway. Now at this point, the argument is still going on and on and on and he's screaming at me and he's going 90 miles an hour down the throughway in the left hand, the fast lane. And I kept begging him and begging him to let me out of the car. Just pull over and let me out. I just, please. And he would not let me out. And then he calls my mother. And he has my mother on the, the audio through the car from the phone. And my mother was crying and begging for him to just stop the car and let me out. And he was yelling and screaming the whole time and saying that, Kimberly, you can't just leave a marriage. People have to put work into the marriage and you can't just leave whenever you want to. And I'm like, do you hear yourself? You're insane. You can't force somebody to stay with you. And this kept on. And then finally at one point there was a rest area coming up and I was like, please just let me off this rest area. My mother was begging him to let me off the rest area. And he made it like he was going to, he got into the right hand lane and started heading towards the ramp to get off. And I was like, thank God he's going to let me out of this car because I'm thinking he's going to hit something. 
because he's going 90 miles an hour. He's being irrational and erratic and, you know, maybe he's just going to hit somebody else and just kill the both of us. I have no idea. So I was relieved thinking, oh, thank God he's going to let me out. And then right as he starts to head up the ramp to get off the service area, he goes, fuck it, and punches the gas, gets back in the right lane, gets back in the left lane, and now we're going 90, 95 miles an hour, and he will not let me out. And he's screaming at me. I was crying. My mother was crying. I told my mother to hang up with me and call the police. And I said that I was going to, too. So we hung up with each other, and I called the state police. And at this point, they're trying to figure out where the car is. They're going to come start looking for it. And while I'm on the phone with the state with 911, and I'm crying, he is videotaping me, crying and begging the state police to come find me and let me out. He finally gets off the exit that we were supposed to get off at, and he pulls into this little, like, parking type area where trucks kind of park it's next to the toll and he knew because the cops were coming and the cops have been to our house a few times before he pulled into this this rest stop and the minute he kind of even slowed down enough oh that's another thing when we were do, doing this wild ride down the throughway when he wouldn't let me out i actually considered in my head if i jump out of this car would i live I was considering jumping out of a 90-mile-an-hour moving car. He stopped, and just, like, the car hadn't even really kind of stopped yet, and I just jumped out the door and ran away from the car, and then about two seconds later, the New York State Police showed up, and they started talking to me, and I was explaining everything to them, what had happened, and one of them went and talked to the other, uh, to him. And... The other one comes back to me and says, you know, you can press charges if you want to, but we'll also have to arrest you too. And I was like, why? And then he goes, because he says you hit him. And I said, well, he was holding me hostage in the car and I was scared for my life. He was going to kill me. I said, I hit him in the face to let me out. And he goes, well, because you hit him, I'd have to arrest you, too. And I'm like, this is insane. I'm like, I can't be arrested. My son's at the house waiting for me. He goes, well, the best thing that I could tell you is tomorrow morning, go to family court and get an order of protection. And, you know, then they'll remove him from the house. He goes, but if you press charges now, then, you know, he could press charges, too, to have you arrested for hitting him. And I felt at this point this was just not even really fair. So they wrote up the incident and gave me the report. And they asked me, they're like, well, he's sitting over there, and I guess he says he's going back to the house. Do you want to ride back with him? Or I'm like, no. Are you serious? So I called a neighbor, and the neighbor came and got me. By the time she came and picked me up and took me back to my house, he was already there. And when I walked in the house, he was on the phone with his mother, and my son and his friend were sitting in the living room playing video games. And the minute I walked in the door, he started arguing with me, and it was escalating and asking. And the more he talked to his mother, and she's a real instigator, the more he talked with her, the worse and worse it was getting again. So at that point, I made a decision to send my son out of the house. And I told him, and I don't normally do this, that. 
if he could, he could spend the night at his friend's house that night because I'm not staying in this house. I said, if I have to, we'll get a hotel room. We'll stay at a friend's house. So he left with his friend. And um, shortly after he left, it just continued and continued and continued. And I tricked him and got him outside. And I ran back up the stairs of the house and I locked the door so he couldn't get in. He was banging on the door, yelling and screaming at me to open the door. And then he called the cops on me and told them I was refusing to let him in the house. So the cops come. But in the meantime, I also had called the cops, too, saying that there was an incident that happened during the day. I have the copy from the police and I am not letting him in this house. So the cops come and they're talking to the both of us. And the one was like, you know, we've told you this before that we can only make a suggestion about you both, one of you leaving, but nobody ever actually has to leave. And I'm like, but this is my home. I own it. And he goes, doesn't matter. He goes, he lives here. This is his residence. You know, it's best if people separate for the night or whatever, but you know, he doesn't have to go. Well, I wasn't staying in the house. He was refusing to leave. And then I said, I was going to take the car. And then he was like, no, she can't have the car. And I'm like, look, you can't have both. And the cop told him, look, you can't have both. He still refused to leave the house or give me the car. So finally, I just got fed up. And I said, you know what? Screw it. I'm, I'm just going to leave. I'm just going to. I'm leaving here. And I had already packed a couple of backpacks at that point. And I told him on the way out the door, I'm like, you are such an asshole. This is my home. I own it. And you're making my son stay out of this house, which is his childhood home. And I'm like, you are just disgusting to me. He, the cops got back in their car and I hadn't even basically put my foot on the sidewalk yet. And they pulled away and left. The minute they turned the corner, he was already chasing me down the street. He was walking after me. I heard him. He was yelling and I had a backpack strapped on my front, backpack strapped on my back, and I had a bag in my hand. And I turned around, and I told him as I was walking really fast, I said, just go back to the house, just leave me alone. You're at the house, you have the car, just go away, please leave me alone. And he kept coming at me faster, so I kept going faster. And at this point, I called 911, and I had them on speakerphone in my hand. And I told them, the cops have to be around here somewhere, they just literally left my house. I'm like, please send them back here. He's chasing me down the street. So as they're still on, on speakerphone with me, he starts to go faster and I start to run. Look at his face. And he says to me, I don't give a fuck about going to jail tonight. I'm going to fucking kill you. And the look on his face was not like any look I'd ever seen. It was like somebody I didn't even know. And I knew he was going to kill me. And he was serious. So I started running faster and I started banging on car windows because there was people in the car on one side of the street. I banged on their windows and yelled for them, please call the cops while I was continuing to run. And on the right side of the street, there was two people standing outside on the sidewalk and I yelled for them to call the police and I still continued to run. And I passed an intersection, a four-way intersection on the street. And I turned around to see where he was. He was running after me. And I saw the cops, one at each stop sign, sitting in their cars, 
watching this go on. I turned back around, I continued to run, and then he finally caught me by the my shoulders, the backpack uh, straps on my shoulders, and he threw me to the ground, and he started attacking me in the street, and then the cops pulled up, and they get out of the car, and I jump up off the ground, and I'm crying, and I said, please, for the love of God, would you arrest him? What else does he have to do to me? And the cop looks at me and told me to shut the fuck up. And then I said, but you saw what he did. He's going to kill me. Please arrest him. And he looks at me again and he goes, would you shut the fuck up? And he, my ex-husband, lunged at me twice and the cops stepped in between and everybody was arguing with each other. The cops were arguing with him. He was arguing with cops. He was yelling at me. And the one cop grabbed me by my backpack and threw me in the cop car and floored it up the street. And he said to me, he goes, where are we going? And I go, I don't know. I don't know. Where are we going? And he goes, where are we going? And I'm like, I'm crying. I'm like, I don't even know. I don't know where we're going. Where are we going? And he goes, where do you want me to take you? So I told him to take me to this uh, friend that I knew that my ex-husband would not know about. It would be like literally falling down the rabbit hole in Alice in Wonderland. And, um, the cop told me, the only thing he told me was, it's best if your son stays away from you tonight. It's not safe for the both of you to be together. And if you're both together, we'd have two hurt people instead of one. And it's best that you don't tell your son where you are. Because if he finds your son, which he knew where my son was anyway, he could convince them to tell where you were. And then he dropped me off and he left. He didn't even take a report. Nothing. They didn't even arrest my ex-husband. They let him go back to my house. The next morning, and in the meantime, I called my son and told him to stay where he was at. And if Jason showed up, to not answer the door, don't answer the phone, call the cops, then call me. And he was like, Mom, are you okay? And I said, yes, I'm going to be okay. And he goes, where are you, Mom? And I just lost it to not be able to tell my child where I was. And the next morning I called domestic violence. It's the first time I ever called them. They came and got me and they took me up to family court and I was issued, my son and I were issued orders of protection. And then from that point on, it was just a nightmare with the police department, the orders of protections themselves, advocating for my rights, trying to keep myself safe, trying to keep my son safe, not having to go all the way to the mayor's office for them to amend that report from that night and charge him for what he did. But that took almost three weeks to do because in the meantime, I was at the police department all the time with my domestic violence advocate every time because he was constantly violating the order of protection. But every time I would go in there and complain, I always kept getting the supervisor and he would just dismiss me. He wouldn't listen to me. One time he was even like, look, okay, I'm going to call him. I'm going to tell him, knock it off, or the next time we're coming to get him. And I was like, are you serious right now? I said, this is, he's violating the order of protection, and you're going to call and give him a heads up? I'm like, basically, you're making me feel like this paper is just something I can toss in the trash because it doesn't mean anything. And then another time I was in there complaining. And about him violating it again and again and again. 
And the supervisor looks at me one day and he goes, you know, it always comes down to he said, she said. And he goes, you know, I'm sure that there are times my ex-wife during our divorce or whatever really wanted to kill me too. And he started laughing. And I said, I'm sure that your ex-wife didn't chase you down the street and try to kill you in it. I don't think it's so funny. And then shortly after that is when I went to the mayor's office with my domestic violence advocate, the mayor, the chief of police, and the supervisor. And from that meeting right there is when they changed everything and charged him. But from that moment on, even during their, in the meeting, the supervisor said that fine, that that's what he would do. Um, Cause the chief of police was questioning it. And the mayor was really kind of questioning it himself. He looks at the supervisor looks at me and goes, you know, fine. If this is what you want to do. Cause I even showed him, I have bruises, pictures of bruises from that night on my shoulders where he grabbed me and threw me to the ground. And he goes, oh, now you have pictures? I'm like, I showed you these pictures before. And he goes, fine, if you really want to do this and come down to the police department, I guess we'll file an incident and have him arrested and bring down all your evidence and all this other stuff. And he was so hostile at that point. And that's really when I think a lot of the behavior with the police department changed. I'd say only two in that police department were actually good at their jobs and really know how to handle domestic violence. And they're the only ones who ever tried to help me. Everybody else in that department, I hit roadblock after roadblock. I was insulted. I was told I was a liar. I, you know, I just, I didn't even know where to go with it. And then the constant stalking through social media began. And the threats and the messages. And I have so many screenshots of all these things. And they were violations. But it's at the discretion of the police department if they want to uphold it because it's social media. And that's where I started really going after my assemblyman to try to help. Because, I mean, at one point we were looking at 30 to 120 tweets every day on Twitter to me. And that went on for like two months. Um, he would use Instagram. He would use Facebook. At one point he wrote Facebook that I was lying. Uh, about what had happened that night. It was just a psychological manifestation in my mind that he really wasn't trying to kill me and he really wasn't chasing me up the street, that I was delusional. And if that's the case, I must be a master magician to be able to pull people into my psychotic delusion of what was going on around me. So, I mean, from there, it's just been a legal nightmare. We did go to trial for that. In the meantime, he was still stalking, harassing me, and cops still weren't doing anything about it. Also, I had informed, he used to coach Little little Giants football. I had informed them that there was orders of protection against him. He was going to trial for what he did to me, and they said that he would not be allowed to coach because he was coaching um, seven to nine-year-old boys. And they felt that he, because of those things, he wouldn't be able to coach. Well, they continued to let him coach. And then they said that they they talked to their lawyers, and the lawyers said that they could not stop him from coaching until the trial was concluded. And if he was found guilty, then he couldn't coach anymore. Well, he was found guilty by the judge, and they still continued to let him coach a little time. He still continued to violate the orders of protection. I would always be down in the police department complaining. He would always get away with it. I found a loaded gun hidden in my house that he hid 
but he did not turn into the police department. And when I called about that, they came down and the one really good detective came down that worked really well with me. They came down to get the gun and I'm like, this is a violation of the order of protection. He did not turn it in all his firearms like he was supposed to. He put this here, he hid it between the front door and there was a chest up against the wall near the stairs that go up to the upstairs bedrooms. He hid this rifle down along the wall behind the chest between the front door and those stairs. And he had been, he had broken into the house many different times. He, and I said to the cops, he put it there purposely. And the one cop said to me, well, we can't do anything about it. And I'm like, why? I'm like, there's a gun in my house. He hid it there purposely. And he goes, well, he could say that he forgot he put it there. And at this point, I lost, stalked, harassed, victimized, psychologically terrorized through social media that I said, are you fucking kidding me? I said, we were both soldiers in the arm, I mean, in the military, in each uh, different branches of service. I said, we would be really shitty soldiers if we didn't know how many guns we had and where they were at all given times. I'm like, you've got to be out of your mind. And the really good detective that works well with me, he goes, I really hate to say it. He goes, but it's a loophole. It's a loophole in the law. He could say that he forgot he put it there and get away with it. And it's just, that's where the law has been a problem. Because I said, the law spends more of his time trying to protect his civil liberties than my right to stay safe and to stay alive. Everyone's so afraid to go after what needs to be done because the law really protects the abuser and not the victim. The police department treats you sometimes like you are the abuser abusing your abuser and that he's the victim or you have to prove to them that you're the victim even when you put the proof in their face. And that's when I called the assemblyman and he ended up coming to my house and meeting with me for two hours. And so he was going to look into everything and try to change things. And he was like, what do you ultimately want to see? I'm like, I want to see the law changed. I don't think that it's right that even though in my orders of protection, because I have two, one from the county and one from the city, once he was found guilty for that. And in the meantime, they did finally start arresting him. Out of all the multiple times that he had violated the order of protection, he was only charged twice. And we did go to court for that, too. And he pled guilty to those. So I said... In the orders of protection, it says in there, no contact, all this other stuff, because they're full stayaways. I said, and it includes in there in the wording, it says, even by electronic means. And I'm like, social media is electronic means. And he goes, well, I would think that it was. So he was supposed to look into it because I want it changed. I don't think that abusers who have orders of protection against them should be allowed to continuously stalk and harass and victimize and psychologically terrorize their victims hiding behind a computer screen and the police have the discretion on whether they want to arrest them or not. It's not fair. It's not right. When there's order of protection in place, they should be arrested for doing that because it's still abuse. So I'm still trying that. And I recently had another incident I and mean, this has gone on now over a year and it still never stops the man will never stop 
you know, never leave me alone. And now he's found a new way that now the federal police are involved in. Yeah, and I can't really talk about too much. He found a way to find information of my, I'm moving to another state because I was told by even the ADA in my state, my, my home state, that I should leave the state because he fears for my safety. He even told me himself that he feels that when the order protection dates, because they extended run out, that he'll just start all over again. But really, he's never really stopped. He's just found more craftier ways to do it that doesn't get caught. But now he was able to access some files that show my travel dates, my travel back and forth from the state that I'm, my house is in to the state that I'm traveling back and forth to now. It shows my travel dates in there. It also lists the dent, the times that I'm gone each month up until my ultimate move date. And it has the date that's listed in there of when I'm moving. And it also lists my physical address in the state that I'm moving to. So now he knows the address of where I will be going. And it's terrible because in my mind, I'm happy and safe. I mean, I'm happy, content, and peaceful for once where I'm going. And I felt safe. And now I feel like that feeling of safety has been violated in my mind because now it feels like no place will ever truly be safe. So then I contacted the assemblyman again. And they're, they are actively looking into trying to change things within New York State to include social media usage and not being able to threaten and just continue to abuse. And the police have to uphold the orders of protection, not just their discretionary thing. And also that includes any police department because he fled the state at one point and he was in another state doing it, the social media harassment from the other state. And the police department in my state called down there and talked to them and that police department refused to arrest him because they felt it's social media. He can write whatever he wants. But even though in one particular post, he even wrote that we were going, when he came back to the state, we were going to court that day. And all these times and all these messages, he kept constantly trying to tell me to drop the charges, take away the orders of protection. He, he was out of his mind. Like his scope of emotions and all these messages were just irrational. My one friend texted me one day saying reading his tweets was like reading a sociopath's diary. In that particular morning in the Instagram post, he wrote that we were going to court and that it was this one chance to try to get me back. And he said, if my wife doesn't take me back, I know what I need to do. I'm going to be gone forever. And other people are going to be gone forever because forever is forever. And I printed it, showed it to the ADA, my lawyer. I showed it to the police department. And once again, well, he didn't use your name directly. So even though it is a threat, um, we really can't do anything about it. And he got away with that one because he didn't use my name directly, even though he said my wife. And I said, well, he's married to me. He's only got one wife. And if that's the case, then you need to go arrest him for being a, a bigamist because I keep breaking the law for that. But, you know, like that's the things that he would do and gets away with 
because of the wording in the law. And the police have even told me before, he's such a good criminal. He walks right on the line of the order of protection. And that they said, all they're doing is waiting for him to take one toe step over it. Well, one taking one toe step over it results in my physical harm. And I feel like I'm always just a sitting duck waiting for him. I don't feel safe in my own home in the state that I'm originally where my house is. It's just been a nightmare. And you know, I mean, I'm in a better place in my life now than I was. But still, this hard, it's hard fighting the law. And the Assemblyman's Office now is looking into a lot of different things to try to change the law, which is good. And I told them the other day when I was talking to them on the phone, I will not back down anymore because the more this continues, the angrier I'm getting. So they're supposed to be looking into that. And it would be nice if it does change because even if it doesn't benefit me right now, I would be happy it benefits somebody else so they don't have to live this way because this is a nightmare. And I told them I will push and push and push and do whatever I have to do to get this to to change because it's not right. And I know there's a lot of stuff missing because it's just so involved, but that's pretty much the gist of, of it. Thank you for sharing that. One thing that really stood out to me about your story was the behavior and interactions you've had with law enforcement. I think it is incredibly inappropriate on how they handled some of those situations. And it really just points out all of the reform we need to do to protect domestic violence survivors. The current system we have does not support survivors and that is clear on every level. I know you said you were working with your local assemblymen and you're putting out some really important things that need to be changed. And I just want to say thank you for taking up that fight because it is a long and a hard fight. But just know every time you are doing that, you are fighting for another woman's life to be saved. So thank you. Thank you. It really is. I will partly down this one concerning what you said about the police department's indifference. I was in the hospital because my blood pressure was going through the roof. I was having heart and blood pressure problems because of the stress that this was all taking on me. And he called my cell phone. My ex-husband called my cell phone, even though he's not supposed to have contact with me. And the nurse was in my room because she was in there to give me my medicine. And I showed it to her. And she's like, oh, my God, is that your husband, you know, ex-husband? And I said, yes. So I called the police to have them come to my room to make so I could make a complaint. and. This one cop that I dealt with before who told me in the past I was a liar comes in my room and the minute he sees it's me and it's like whole demeanor changes. I made the nurse stay in the room and the way he was talking to me, I was trying to explain everything to him. That it was a violation. He called my cell phone. He was just so nasty. He goes, well, you know, if you really want to pursue this, then when you get out of the hospital, come down to the police department and we will file a complaint. And I'm like, but you're in my hospital room right now. This, I called you so that you could do these things. Why do I have to wait for me to get in the hospital? Because I don't know when I'm leaving the hospital. He goes, well, if you still want to pursue it when you get out, then you just come down and do it then. I'm not taking the report right now. And he left. And the nurse looks at me and she said to me, do they treat you like that all the time? And I said, yes. And she goes, that was the most appalling thing I ever saw in my life. She goes, I wanted to take my scissors out of my pocket and cut him. <laughs> I'm just kind of outraged 
by how the police have treated you in all of these incidents. You are only asking them to do their job to protect you and uphold the law. And each time they acted as if you were asking for something extremely out of the ordinary or asking them to go out of their way when really all you were asking them to do was their job. And I think how police interact with domestic violence survivors needs to change because their negligence is putting women's lives at risk, putting domestic survivors' lives at risk. And that's not okay. Yes. They really treat victims of domestic violence like we're the abusive people. And the minute I complained at the mayor's office, my treatment concerning the police department just went completely downhill. It's almost like they took it personal. Although it did have some negative consequences, I believe sometimes people need to be called out. Because if nobody says anything, then nothing will change. So thank you for standing up and fighting for what you deserve and what is right. It wasn't just fighting for my rights. I fought the police department as much as I did because I was fighting for my son, too, because our lives, my life was in danger, and ultimately his was, too, because he lives in the house with me. And I had a, I remember one day I had a discussion with my son. He was 16 at the time. And I said to him, because things were going on again, I said, if anything happens, if you hear anything in the middle of the night, don't come into my room. Go downstairs, call the cops, and wait and let them in. And he was like, yeah, okay. But he's not. He would never do that. He's 16 years old. He hears his mother being attacked. He's going to jump into it. And he would get hurt. And I I wasn't just trying to keep myself safe. I needed to keep my son safe, too. Our lives were in danger. So I pushed and pushed and pushed the police department as much as I could and fought them constantly because it wasn't just about me. It was about him, too. I mean, I'd already lost one son thanks to my ex-husband. Luckily, that situation's resolved happily. Thank you for sharing that. Is there anything else you wanted to add? I think that all states really need to catch up to technology. And they need to not allow abusive people with orders of protection against them to use social media as their platform for a new level of abuse. I completely agree. And I just have one more question for you, and that is, what are your next steps in the future? I'm moving out of the state that I live in, where I have a house in, to another state like 1,300 miles away. And I used to feel safe here when I'm here, because I'm down here right now. I'm traveling back and forth a lot. I used to feel safe here. I don't right now because I know that he knows where I am. But my future is just keep pushing forward like I have been and be happy in the life that I have. I'm with a wonderfully incredible man who treats me like I am the queen of the world. And he'll tell me sometimes that I'm the most beautiful woman ever. And I still find a hard time believing it because I was told I was ugly every day for four years. But I'm happy every single moment that I'm with him. He never has raised his voice to me, never raised his hand to me. He's ultra respectful. He's a very great guy. I feel like this is something I should have always had my whole entire life. 
and I'm happy in that aspect. I can't wait to see what the future holds with that. Thank you very much for talking to me. I really hope that some change happens, and I hope that any of this helps another person leave because they're never going to change. Well, congratulations on being in a new happy and healthy relationship. We are all wishing you well. And I'm so sorry that that feeling of safety was taken from you. That was completely unfair and so selfish on his behalf. But I hope you are able to find peace. And also, I just want to thank you one more time for speaking with me today and allowing me. And that concludes today's episode of Beaten, Not Broken. Tune in next time.